millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that 2 plus 2 does indeed make 4. I am your host for today's show, Stefan Rolnick. And it's very fitting that we chose episode 101 to cover a topic that underpins the basis of Room 101 in George Orwell's 1984. How do you make someone believe that 2 plus 2 doesn't make 4? I'm really excited about our guest for this episode. I'm a huge fan of his work. I've read both of his books and I think he's been well ahead of the curve when it comes to the dangerous new world of online disinformation. Peter Pomerantsev's parents arrived in London as political refugees from the Soviet Union after facing persecution for their distribution of banned literature. They devoted their life in the UK to radio broadcast, working at the BBC, an organisation that liberated them in its commitment to impartiality and pursuit of objective truth. But today Peter's seeing the very thing that liberated his parents and would one day liberate the Soviet Union, freedom of information flow, destroy any notions that we had of objective truth. Peter used to be a TV producer in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and it was here that he wrote his first book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, as he began to notice that post-Soviet Russia lacked any sense of a new identity and that Cynical PR men and post-truth politicians were rushing in to fill that void. After writing that book, he returned to the UK in search of a respite. But only a few years later, he started to realise that the post-truth politics that he thought he'd left behind in Russia were taking hold here in the UK as well as across the world. In his latest book, This Is Not Propaganda, Peter speaks to online pro-democracy activists across the world on the front lines of this information war. In this new war of freedom versus tyranny, the strategy is not to prevent freedom by suppressing information flow, but by overloading us with so much conflicting information that we don't know who to trust. Peter talks to me about his family's personal story. We discuss whether the age of information has sent democracy into a death spiral, and we talk about what, if anything, can help us get back out. It's a heavy episode, but Room 101 is about confronting those things that we fear the most. Peter Pomerantsev, thanks for coming on. Oh, I hope it's going to be my pleasure. We'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. see. esque grilling yeah. coming up. Um, before we get into it, and this is a bit, this is a bit of a tough question, I guess. For our listeners who might not have come across you before, who are you, and what do you do? That's a very good question. So, so nowadays, when I'm, I'm 
I've just passed my 42nd birthday. With Congratulations. My... Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> all downhill. But um, nowadays, I'm, I'm kind of semi-respectable. I run a little think tank at the London School of Economics. When I say little, I mean really little. I mean more an initiative than a, than a, than a think tank that analyzes new forms of disinformation campaigns, media manipulation, especially online um, in the 21st century, how it's changed from the 20th century. Um, I suppose propaganda, if you want to use such a contested term. And then we also work with media and different civic groups uh, and public diplomacy um, um, people to think about how do you counteract um, some of the effects of of the kind of disinformation campaigns that we see. Um, in a previous life, I was a, a television producer. I worked in Russia for a long time. And, and when I'm not doing university stuff, I am uh, I'm running books nowadays. So I've just finished my second book, just came out, called This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. And um, it has a unicorn on the cover, <laughs> which might be the best thing about it. <laughs> um, well, let's start off with some of that disinformation that you talked about. Uh, big question to start us off. To what extent is disinformation the biggest threat we face today? Oh, I, d I don't know how to categorize these things. I don't know. I mean... And in your book, you say you use the word propaganda in your title. In the book, you say it's a word you find difficult yeah. to use as well. Yeah. But listen, I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the, the essence of the challenge is the following. So in the 20th century... We kind of came to a set of loose formula that were meant to help guarantee a minimal democratic information space. Certainly it was different to the totalitarian information space. And that was kind of a mixture of you know, laws around freedom of expression, guaranteeing freedom of expression. So Article 19 of the Human Rights Act, um, Declaration of Human Rights, sorry. Um, media pluralism, you know, not ideal by any means, you know, the media might be owned by oligarchs and tycoons, but at least we have enough of them. They kind of like smack each other around and at least we can have a little bit of pluralism and kind of public service broadcasting. So in Britain, obviously, you've got the role of the BBC and, and where there isn't a strong public broadcaster like in the US, kind of public service values. The idea that media should not just be partisan, that they should strive for ideals of objectivity and balance and impartiality and accuracy, that kind of ethos. Uh, you know, maybe we didn't even think about these things too much. We kind of just lived around mm. them. But certainly, you know, when 1989 happened and the Soviet Union and authoritarian regimes in South Asia and the Balkans and Latin America all fell, you know, the kind of the advice that the democracies would give them is that this is the formula that you need. You need mm. a, a pluralistic media kind of based on advertising, um, freedom of expression guarantees and um, and kind of a bit of public service thrown in there. And that was kind of meant to be what guaranteed uh, a democratic information space. Um, and now all those kind of assumptions and formula and principles and metaphors really that informed them have, have been blown asunder. Uh, and that's really the essence of the crisis that we're in. Um, so, uh, you know, simple things like, you know, that we live in a marketplace of ideas, which was kind of an assumption that we all lived in, that more information would eventually mean the best information won out. That doesn't seem true anymore in an age of, of, of you know, internet-fueled disinformation. Um, you know, that pluralism leads to better debate doesn't seem so true in an era of hyper-partisanship and polarization. And, you know, even this idea that I think is axiomatic to all journalists that we can speak truth to power, 
mm-hmm. that by finding the bit of evidence, yeah. we will shame and embarrass the president yeah. into, into behaving. That's been blown away. I and, think that's, and, that's, and that's maybe the toughest one for us to kind of deal with because you, know, you can get all the evidence you want about Trump or Johnson and the rest, and they don't care. Yeah, and I think there, there was a horrible moment at some point in the last few years where Republicans in the United States realized if they just destroyed that part of themselves that felt shame, that actually that became a superpower. <laughs> The question of shame is fascinating. I, 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 I mean, someone has to write a great kind of philosophical book about why shame has disappeared in our politics. Yeah. Um, it's not new for politicians to lie, but you could embarrass them when you caught them. I mean, Profumo, mm-hmm. you know, you know, resigning because of a sex scandal yeah. or something. Um, and now it's disappeared. It's very, very interesting why. Um, and and there, there, there's many ways in sort of to get into that question. So. Just building that disinformation stuff and actually touching on your own personal story, which is one of the kind of big things that I noticed about this new book is that you intertwine your chapters with elements of your personal story and your family's personal story. I just want to zoom in on one bit that I really liked was about how when you were a child, you used to create these imaginary worlds that were centered around imaginary football teams. And as a side note, detail i really love was that you occasionally appeared as a substitute in these football teams which is a that level been, of that would have been immodest for me which, to be like a central player you know which is like a level of self-doubt that i really relate to um but um so you spent but now you spend a lot of time writing about the dangers of these kind of alternative universes and these fake universes but is there something about creating a world from nothing that you actually find quite thrilling so firstly, I mean, like, so like, when I was a child, I was like talking about me when I was six or seven. Yeah. And there's in the book, I talk about kind of my first fact check when a teacher yeah. kind of pulled me up on this. Because uh, I start talking about it in school. About this imaginary universe. Yeah, yeah, as if it's real. Yeah. And she's like, well, are you reading the team? I'm like, no, what do you mean, really? <laughs> it was and when you were going to go to Argentina or Yeah, something. I was like, there was the next one going to Uruguay. I mean, like, I was, you know, I, I was quite a specific child yeah. for, for many reasons. <laughs> but... But but that realization we think all of us have as children mm-hmm. that oh there's a reality, and you know your fan there's a fantasy world and a reality world, mm-hmm. and if you want to function in this world, yeah. you've got to abide by the rules. And most of us do this as children, and you know psychoanalysts talk about this a lot, like recognizing the reality principle, which nobody wants to do because at some level it means recognizing your your mortality. Yeah. And I think I think the pleasure that people derive from Trump and Putin and Johnson and and many many others yeah. of this new breed of politicians who kind of revel in the fact they don't care about the facts, I think we underestimate the pleasure of that. Because that's kind of a a way of saying, sticking a middle finger up to reality. You know, there's something kind of rebellious and punkish and deeply childish about it as well, saying my fantasy world is bigger than, than the sad factuality around me. Does it potentially also come from a place of despair? I think, I think definitely, look, you know, it's no, it's no accident that none of these leaders can offer an idea of the future. If they were saying, look, this is the real future we're going to achieve. Mm. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. And here's the yeah. evidence that we're going to get there. That's a different kind of discussion. They're all nostalgists. I mean, that's, yeah. I think, again, maybe linked to childhood in some way, but they're, they're all nostalgists. They have no sense of where we're going because they can't think, I suppose, at a basic level, they, they're struggling with a socioeconomic program that means something. But I think it goes deeper than just sort of money. Um, I think it's kind of, as a society we've run out of stories about progress that we can tell um that might not that doesn't mean they won't reappear mm-hmm. but but i think we've run out of those stories um so even if times are tough you know as long as society feels that it's going somewhere yeah that there's this bigger story there then uh um you know you can you can kind of lock people into a serious discussion about evidence and facts and you know how you're going to get to this future 
And I just want to focus on the past for just a second longer, but I want to focus on your past because um, you were son of Soviet dissidents, a first generation immigrant. I, I always forget how the generations work. And I think there's something you talk about in the book about identity. And I always think, and this is something I've experienced, I think a lot of people who have immigrant heritage tend to experience as well, that the kind of more mixed or confused your identity feels, the more you develop an obsession or a kind of fascination with it. To what extent was this book and the stories you told in, in the book and the work that surrounds the book a kind of attempt to make sense of that story and that path that your, your parents took as dissidents from the Soviet Union to the United Kingdom or to the Western liberal world? So I think there's a couple of things. So the book is not a memoir mm -hmm. in the sense that, uh, you know, I'm trying to tell my family story, my own story. I mean, the reason my family's there to, to be sort of a, um, you know, a small example of, of the argument that I'm making, which is that the things they fought for as Soviet dissidents in the 20th century, uh, freedom of expression. I mean, they were arrested for you know, handing out copies of Nabokov and Solzhenitsyn. Uh, the battle against censorship, um, the battle for democratic ideals as something worth sacrificing yourself for. Both those stories and those ideas have been deeply undermined. So they're there to kind of show how the 21st century is different from the 20th century, but how we still need to sort of dig deeper into those democratic values to find what still matters. So it really isn't a family memoir in the full sense mm -hmm. of the world, uh, uh, in a full sense of the word, and certainly not, uh, certainly the book is not about me trying to make sense mm -hmm. of myself it's you know i'm trying to tell it's a piece of journalism mm -hmm. which i try to make engaging and emotional by personalizing yeah. but i would never i'm not quite at that stage in my life where i'm going to write sure. the, the big memoir so it wasn't about that however and i kind of use my family story as as a way to explore these different kind of propaganda models that, that have existed over the ages because my father was first a victim of the Soviet regime. Then he worked for the BBC World Service and Radio Free Europe, which is kind of the American, much more agate-proppy version of the World Service. Uh, so he was involved in the great Cold War battles mm -hmm. um, of ideology and, and media and, and, and narrative. Um, so that's why my parents are there, to, to tell that story. But, but the identity thing, look, propaganda, let's call it sort of the formation of you know, influence. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's not, you know, at the end of the day, it is about building identities and creating identities and finding out what really motivates people and motivates behavior. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just about kind of bots and trolls and fake news sites. That's kind of the superficial stuff that I think one has to get through quite quickly. Um, but it really is about creating identity, especially now when all, a lot of the old identities have collapsed. Mm -hmm. And the best propagandists today, whether they're Islamists or whether they're Dominic Cummings or whether they're the people around Trump or whether they're Putin, are very conscious that they're working in a flux where our old ideologies don't, ha don't, don't really work anymore, where social categories like working class, middle class mm -hmm. don't work anymore, where economic stability has disappeared, and where it's their job to give people a sense that they're part of some sort of new type of group. Um, and the, the ones who are best at that win, basically. I think one of the things that, is achieved in the book by contrasting your family's experience with kind of modern day disinformation. As I wouldn't say it is despairing, but I think it makes you face up to the kind of really dark reality that a lot of the drive that kind of made freedom possible in, in the 90s ended up becoming the thing that, you know, the kind of damaging anti-democratic uh, forces that we're dealing with today. And I think, I think it's 
obviously important to address that. And I think there were times reading the book where I did kind of slide into despair, but you kind of slide in and out. And it is a bit of a roller coaster like that. But from writing the book and researching it and the other research you've done, do you get the sense that this is just the growing pains of a new technology? Or is there some kind of fundamental human flaw or kind of switch that has been flicked by this technology that renders all hope kind of in the informa- information age kind of pointless? So the tech... The interplay between technology and ideology is fascinating. I mean, you know, I, I don't think I'm a technological determinist, but but ignoring the way the technology shapes the ideology mm-hmm. uh, is 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 was wrong too. Um, to extent, you know, the medium is the, can be the message. So what's very interesting with the new technology is, as opposed to kind of, you know, an era when we had a couple of radio stations, a couple of TV stations where you had a propaganda model of one to many, you know, a propagandist mm-hmm. and a propagandi. That kind of fitted these big ideologies that were beamed down to people and hammered into people yeah. like communism or kind of like a, a version of democratic capitalism. You can't even, you wouldn't even be able to do that today. Yeah. I mean, even if you, you know, it's as if like a new ideology is going to appear, you're going to be able to distribute it in some sort of, yeah. some sort of like single channel to people. Um, instead, you have to do the opposite. You have to kind of climb into people's little social media groups, climb into mm. their little uh, echo chambers which is a bad metaphor, but let's use it, um, and kind of manipulate them from within. And what the technology gives a propagandist is to kind of fit their political aims around someone's personal psychology. So it's much more of propaganda reaching in and manipulating people from inside rather than hammering an ideology down on them. The technology drives that. That's what the technology provides. And by definition, it kind of impels a slightly different a slightly different approach. And... One of the places where you find a fascinating example of this, albeit a few years earlier, is in Russia. And that's the subject of your first book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which I would definitely recommend to people. Um, What have you learned since writing that book? And what did you learn from writing this one? Well, so my first book is a Russia book. And again, it's sort of a memoir, which I'm using a memoir as a tool to, to explore a new type of authoritarianism that's very media-based, that, yeah. that where violence plays a smaller role and media a much bigger role than in the Soviet Union. Um, but also, apart from technology, it's kind of a propaganda where no one's trying to prove anything to you. They're just using doubt mm. and the sense that truth is unknowable to make people feel uncertain and paranoid and sort of we yearn for a strong leader in, the, in this murky, murky world full of dark conspiracies. So it's a... It's not even a, a propaganda trying to motivate people. It's trying to demotivate you a lot of the time yeah. uh, just to keep you kind of paranoid and passive. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a propaganda where, where really, really from the mid-1990s, Russian politicians are reveling in the fact that you know, they can lie openly and they don't care about the facts. So kind of this Trumpian and Johnsonian yeah. aspects were kind of in full flourish in Russia in the 1990s. Um, and the second book was kind of impelled by trying to understand why so many of the phenomena that I'd seen in Russia in the 2000s, which were already there in the 1990s, have now manifest themselves in the political discourse here. So why did the future arrive first in Russia? And kind of my conclusion is that, that paradoxically, by losing the Cold War, and then by sort of the you know, disastrous sort of democratic capitalist reforms in the early 90s, Russia was one of the places where all the kind of ideologies and versions of progress that we had, whether left-wing or right-wing or centrist, kind of collapsed first. And politicians and propagandists there 
really by the mid-1990s, are left in this flux where all the old ideas, philosophies, narratives, and political identities have gone. And they start to experiment with a new type of propaganda. And we've kind of reached that same place sort of 20 years later or 30 years later. Um, after the 2008 crash, after sort of like various foreign policy blunders in Iraq that undermined the idea that democracy was an inevitable future. I mean, we have lived with a default idea of progress the last 20 odd years, you know, sort of some sort of version of the world as on the front cover of The Economist magazine, sort of ever greater globalization, ever more sort of freedom and whatever. Um, it was kind of a deep, like, like all true ideologies kind of default, you mm. know, just in our heads. It was yeah. just there. That's where we were going. Um, and, you know, with quite a technocratic approach to politics. And um, and that kind of collapsed. And I, I don't think there's one moment. I don't think it's like Russia where there's an 89 and 93, these kind of mm. sharp cutoff moments where you can see where things fell apart. I think it's a much slower process, um, but it seems to be fairly universal. Um, and now, and, and that's kind of produced um, an environment where politicians and propagandists have come to the same conclusions that what is effective are the kind of rhetorical tactics that worked in Russia in the mid-1990s. And I think one of the things that I've been ruminating on quite a bit after reading your book is you say the kind of this wave happened first in Russia and it's kind of there's now other liberal democracies around the world that are experiencing this as well. I guess my worry has been that Russia's today holds the clue as to how bad things could get here. Now, is, is that me being far too anxious about the future or is there something in that that things could get a lot worse? I wouldn't be complacent because firstly, we have seen um, countries that were meant to have become democracies, Hungary, now Poland, who would have meant to make the transition mm. from authoritarian to communist, uh, <laughs> 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 from authoritarian to democratic, now undermined, even though on paper, they're still democracies. Now, one of the geniuses of the Putin system in the early 2000s was there kind of were elections in Russia. There kind of was the appearance of plural media, but the Kremlin learned to manipulate all of those to make them kind of yeah. nonsensical. And Hungary were kind of at the point where it's virtually impossible now for the opposition to, to, to win an election ever. Sim even though there seems to be plural media, you get there, there's mm -hmm. lots of newspapers, lots of TV channels, but the financial incentives are so strong to obey Orban that they're not, you know, they may as well be a sort of one TV station. So you've got a generation of, of leaders in, res in what were meant to be safe democracies, because they're in the EU, they were, they were in a regulatory framework where democracy was meant to be guaranteed. That's been undermined from inside. Having said that, um, I think what we'll, no, I think, I think even though the kind of, the political, cultural permafrost can be in a similar state in different places, mm -hmm. It still manifests itself in very different ways. I mean, look, I mean, propaganda is a lot like art. It's like a really bad version of art. Propaganda is the worst, lowest, dirtiest form of art. And just as you had sort of modernism in the 1920s flourish in Germany and Russia and America, it was still different, you know, and it was still existing in a different context and in a different market. Uh, and again, so the propaganda is very similar in, in different countries because something in the zeitgeist is similar, but... You know, we still have vastly different institutions here. We do have genuine courts. You do, we do have, you know, independence of uh, independent institutions, which just don't really exist in Russia. So I wouldn't think, it, I don't think it's that linear. Yeah. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I'm going to stray into territory yeah. here that I definitely shouldn't because I know there'll be philosophy geeks here who won't like my use of these terminologies. But oh, talking about Russia as a place that kind of considers the idea of truth or the, the cultural idea that took hold in the 90s, that the idea of truth is this kind of laughable thing that we can make fun of. Um, and and so if we take, and, and, and I know this is overused, but postmodernism to be the idea that all models are flawed in, in a certain way, all models of seeing the world are flawed in a certain way, is your work an attempt to defend kind of what came before that, you know, I, I guess a more, a more enlightenment view, or... Are you attempting to kind of articulate a kind of newer form of all models are flawed, but some are useful? Mm-mm. Oh, God. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I've heard about that. that. Yeah. What's, what's, that, what's that? The all models are flawed. I was listening to a podcast. About I think it might have been Ezra Klein, maybe. With, with, yeah, 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 yeah. With, with the KLF guy. Exactly. Listen, I'm not a political philosopher. No. I'm really not. So, but without a doubt, the postmodernist formula, which I suppose can be boiled down to knowledge doesn't exist. Knowledge is just a subset of power. Therefore... Uh, therefore, all knowledge is, is just like, bullshit. Yeah. Well, it's not <laughs> bullshit, but it's all kind of completely sort of. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 not there. Yeah. It's, it's all just a subset of some sort of power model. Um, that's clearly been hacked by by very cynical regimes. So the Kremlin loved its kind of like mm. bits of Baudrillard. Uh, the Chinese now quote Foucault. Mm-hmm. You know, for I think he's been arguing why there should be no universal human rights. Mm. Um, and I do think whatever the virtues of these various ideas when they came about, I think if you've been hacked and if your ideas have been hacked by the forces that you thought you were fighting, you really have to go and re- it's up to you to, to now move on. Yeah. <laughs> it's too, yeah. You can't say, well, that's because a lot of postmodernist philosophers will say, philosophers will say, well, that's not what we meant. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, we didn't mean this, for but he has hacked it. Sounded a lot like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, but like, you know, they found the flaw in the operating system. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I have heard postmodernist philosophers say, no, 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 we were trying to do something liberational. We were describing the world, but yeah, I, I don't think we, you can keep on using those tropes when it's been when they've been hacked, um, you know. So, so for, for that, that's definitely happened. But look, in in the kind of I only look at one little thing, which is propaganda and information, and you know, the much maligned term, the public sphere. And I suppose, um, 
the work that we do here and the work that I'm interested in, it's not about establishing or re-establishment absolute truths. I have a lot of respect for fact checkers, but I think it's a losing game. Mm -hmm. I think what we're much more focused on is the need for communication, trust, the possibility of deliberation and creating an environment where that kind of deliberative democracy is still possible. So in, in that sense, it is very much enlightenment values mm. or ancient Greek values. In that sense, it might be slightly, and here I too am straying yeah. to philosophy that I don't <laughs> understand, maybe slightly have a mass in, in the idea that it's in the moment of communication mm. that the rationality happens. It's being able to talk to each other that it matters. But I don't think you have to be a Habermasian to think that. You can be you can be other things. But it's uh I mean Bakhtin is about that. But but, but lots of mm. you know so that's what we're thinking. So so no I don't I don't think I don't think we can in terms of let's say let's go back to public broadcasting. I don't think you can go back to the objective Walter Cronkite's BBC mm. version of here is the nine o'clock <laughs> news and here is the truth. I think that's gone. Yeah. yeah? Um, I think the future of kind of a social media public service will be about creating an environment where communication, which is not based on humiliation, scandal, and outrage, is possible. Yeah. Um, so it's about creating that field and, about, and generating narratives and generating conversations where facts matter again. Um, but no, I don't think we. I don't think we can go back to yeah. to. Jeremy Paxman's The <laughs> Truth, if he ever was. <laughs> yeah, we won't get into that one here, but I think there's an example from your book that actually really illustrates this point well, because I do agree that instinctively fact-checking feels like something we should still be doing. Oh, no, no, but I'm it, not against fact-checking. I, I just don't think it's the... the I don't know, I like... Yeah, yeah, some yeah. of my best friends fact-checkers. <laughs> like, like, I, I just think that it's not... It's not. It's it's once... It's a really important thing for many reasons, but... Uh, it's almost more that the idea of abandoning it rather than how effective it is. There's something with the partisan fight. Yes. It's like, I know that I'm losing, but I'm just going to stay here and fight. Yes. So that, and that spirit's very important, actually. So but somehow I was just somehow, <laughs> sometimes just sort of just like saying, no, there is a reality and this is it. And I don't care what you say, Mr. Yeah. Trump, is really important. But what we've created here uh, in our very small kind of little initiative is to, okay, how do we start talking to the people who or at least some of the people who are watching Fox News, yeah. and how do we start to build a dialogue? Right. So it's one of many tools we have, and I and there was an example in your book of somebody who's thinking about this in a really interesting way. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to meet Alberto? Sure. So Alberto, of course, is is is, is a um, a Mexican, uh, a Mexican sort of protest leader and data guru. Um, I mean, he's actually focused on on. on on how data can drive social change. Um, he's a sort of guy who sort of stares at computer screens <laughs> a lot, you know, and, and, and the sort of stuff that, you know, he can spend his day looking at data sets and, and, they, and they reveal mm -hmm. the revolutionary spirit of mankind yeah. lurking beneath the surface. Um, but to give a simple example, so he's very inspired by the way Google managed to predict a flu epidemic. Uh, it's quite a famous case that Google always likes to drag out. But by the way, people were searching for certain medical symptoms mm. and the meaning of these medical symptoms in a certain geography. Google could tell that, oh, we're about to have a flu epidemic in this area because too many people at the same time were looking for, I don't know, clammy hands and red eyes or whatever. And they managed to alert, I think, the World Health Organization who could take action and nip this epidemic in the bud before it became, what's the next thing, pandemic? I don't know. Yeah. So, so he's like, okay, well, can we do the same thing with kind of the revolutionary 
desires for social change in Mexico. So he began analyzing search queries. He, there was a, a bunch of data points he was using, sort of geography search queries, references to a certain website, um, to begin to tease out what is it that people really want. Because protest movements are often very hit and miss. They're like, is it about this? Is this what people want or this? And some, I mean, you know, if you're more kind of like, you know, political you can do all these focus groups and stuff like that but he's something much something much more organic and something much more kind of like taken out of out of um uh, data and uh and you know the way he tells the stories is 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 he managed to catch that moment and then he could build communication between different people around these common concerns so 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 data kind of reveals kind of the revolutionary face hit the revolutionary reality hidden behind society um so so that was very, very interesting. So this idea that, you know, we've all become used to our data being abused by Cambridge Analytica, by um, various political campaigns kind of crawling inside mm. of us and manipulating yeah. us and spinning us. He's basically saying, I suppose, if you think of the consequences, you know, we do have to embrace the technology and the data, but we can do it a, in a transparent, ethical way. Yeah. We just say how we're gathering it and why we're gathering it. And then, and then, and then make decisions which aren't manipulating people, but are summoning them to a dialogue which is which is I, I i do think there's a huge difference between that yeah and just to quickly touch on something i was really interested is the people on the other side the people who are in the troll farms or you know yeah. or who are who are kind of pumping out some of the disinformation i wonder what did you understand because obviously a lot of people do jobs that they kind of have this cognitive dissonance about the, their feelings about what their job does to the rest of the world but also it's a job and it makes money and it might be interesting or creative on a personal level did you understand anything about the subject from any contacts or things you've learned about people who are kind of the machines behind this so, so i met i met exactly so, so i met both people trying to do good in this <laughs> in this in this in this world but also i met a lot of the spin doctors the trolls the bot herders the people who are kind of like you know um, creating using sort of information technology to manipulate people often in in deceptive ways mm -hmm. i think that's really the the uniting theme um it's deceptive behavior um and and yes they either to to do well in this industry you have to be amoral um you have to or you have to be able to switch off your morality when you come to work um as you quite say you distance yourself from the content the people who work in troll farms never describe themselves as trolls mm -hmm. Um, often they use the passive tense. You know, so it's some material was posted. Not like I created this bullshit material, but yeah. you know, this sort of upside down stuff. Um, and they disassociate themselves from it. Sometimes maybe, I, I didn't meet any, so maybe sometimes there are sadists who enjoy it. They enjoy going online and sending death threats to, to Jess Phillips or something. But I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, for most people it's just a job. I mean, it's that banality of evil sort of. Yeah. And, We've touched on technology, and as you said, it's not 100% of the picture as it's often portrayed, but also it's not completely irrelevant. And one of the things, there was an interesting passage in the book where you talked about, you were talking about dissidents, and you mentioned one of the things that a lot of them had in common from your experience was a study of, of humanities. Which yeah, that was actually, no, that's not my show. That's, that, that, that's, that's come out in the kind of... Apologies, in, yeah, yeah, in, in the, the social science, yeah. But yeah. just, uh, I wonder, I wonder and, and it was about because, you know, uh, they can imagine worlds different to this one. Um, talking about social media, and I think people have kind of gone round and round in circles talking about um, the ways in which social media has failed and there's important policy implications in that. But stepping back for a second, and th this is certainly borrowed from other academics much smarter than myself but 
what, what is it about the fact that a lot of the people working in these tech companies are STEM graduates that perhaps they missed they missed this blind spot in the system, or is is that too harsh? And you know, I'm I'm a science student myself, but is is that too harsh on the idea of STEM's interaction with the democratic space, or, or was there something inevitable about the fact that these people came from engineering and they had a very singular mindset where there is like a there is a right and a wrong answer? Yeah, let's have a go at engineering grads <laughs> now. Okay, well, there's two things that enge- for engineering grads which I always find fascinating: sort of the high proportion of people who become radical Islamists um, who studied engineering. And the way that was always explained to me is that it's the desire for kind of like, you know, a full system that works. You know, you can't live with sort of like half truths and, and liberalism is full of fuzziness. Just no, we need a, f- you know, a complete ideology that explains everything. I don't know. That for me sounds a little bit, a little bit dodgy because um, there are plenty of people who, 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 who studied the arts and then became sort of great dictators. Yeah. But, um, no, but what has happened is this thing of, you know, the CP Snake, all the two cultures. So you go to you go to Stanford and you go to the Silicon Valley and it's these people who are tech geniuses and maths geniuses and really don't understand what democracy is. I mean, they're actual idiots when it comes to it. I mean, they've adopted this default libertarianism, which is, I'm sure libertarianism can become sophisticated, but it's the way that's articulated in Silicon Valley. This is the sort of ideology of, my 10 year olds i mean it's just i just want freedom <laughs> freedom i mean it's just such nonsense i mean reading peter Thiel's books is embarrassing i mean it's like wow you wouldn't have actually got into you you wouldn't have actually got into university writing this sort of stuff and and hearing them talk about what how democracy is and what democracy is and political philosophy is is painful mm-hmm. um because why is that listening to me talk about computer science they must be burn their ears and you did have Without a doubt, these kind of tech geniuses create the stuff and really not understanding the consequences mm-hmm. of, of what the hell they were talking about. And, and it's, they also hacked into the language of 1989. If you go there, they talk a lot about freedom and then singularity and personalization and this sort of like idiot ideal of what the human being is. Mm-hmm. My sense is it's all much simpler than this. So I grew up, as I mentioned, in the Sellers podcast, I used to work in telly and I worked in reality shows. And as your listeners might know, when the first reality show shows came out, like The Apprentice and Big Brother, people collaborated because that's what people do in normal environments. You know, that's they help each other. They've been abandoned in a room together. And the producer was like, oh, well, this is terrible for ratings. And so we started manipulating conflict. We started casting scandalous characters. We started, you know, putting in every incentive for you to behave like a Donald Trump. And no wonder Donald Trump did so well in this world. So we, we kind of, you know, compare the first season of The Apprentice mm-hmm. uh, where people are nice and taking it seriously and just normal and collaborating and, and being quite nice to the later seasons where we just start casting freaks yeah, and creating cheap outrage and content and narcissism. My sense is that when like, Mark Zuckerberg was designing social media, he was so full of reality show culture because it was everywhere on TV around him nonstop that that was his idea of what the human is. And he designed Facebook as a vast reality show which rewards narcissism and uh, a Donald Trump-like personality and outrage. And, you know, that's what goes viral. So he kind of put all the incentives in that is a pseudo version of the human, of the human sort of, uh, the human personality. So actually, like, social media was designed by Simon Cowell. It's, it's that, that's where we live. Because the answer of Google and Facebook is whenever like we sort of say, look, the way you've designed, you know, YouTube is is perverse. Mm. And they're like, well, no, it's just it's just what people want. 
It's just this. What? No, human beings just want extremism. That's not our fault. It's just like no, you've designed a, you've designed this in a way that encourages extremism. Because I don't know if your you, your your listeners know, like you know, if you watch one. There's been many studies yeah. about this. You, you, you watch one video about, I don't know, I, Nietzsche, and yeah. three videos on, you'll have neo-Nazi stuff. Because just yeah. the way it's been designed is to encourage more and more and more cons- extremist conspiratorial content. It could have been designed under other principles. Mm. Uh, and same with Facebook uh, and Twitter. It, does, it is designed to reward reality show-like behavior. So I think that's what's happened. Um, and, and they're kind of like, you know, their whole sort of you know, pseudo- cod libertarian philosophy is actually just like reality show psychology uh which is kind of the numbskull popular culture that they grew up with imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And um, just we're coming to the end now, but obviously this is a podcast uh, for centre left progressives and people broadly across the Labour Party, um, democratic socialists, uh, social democrats. If you were grading the performance of social democratic politicians to the kind of populist moment, and and feel free <laughs> to be very frank, what grade are you giving them, and you know what what what's your mark, as it were? It's funny. I mean, obviously, social democratic parties have done badly everywhere. Maybe because they were in power too long. Maybe because they lost touch of their own roots. Whatever. There could be it could be lots of reasons for it. Um, but if you actually listen to what a lot of the populists are saying, I mean, they have they've adapted populism as a strategy. Yeah, in the sense that because they feel the old definitions of left and right don't really hold anymore. So you have to sort of create groupings of the people. You know, you have to sort of like create the people for every election. Um, But if you actually listen to what a lot of them are preaching, it's social democracy. I mean, that's what they're saying. They're saying we just need a bit more state, kind of going to keep capitalism basically. We need a bit of a mix. If you actually listen to the output of their policies... It's different types of social democracy. Some some is kind of a bit more social. Some is a bit more democracy. I think we're all social democrats. I think social democracy's complete and utter victory mm. has kind of meant that as a party, like kind of we're all social democrats now. Maybe it didn't satisfy something else. Maybe it didn't satisfy notions of belonging and you know all these kind of mm. other needs that we have. I think I think social democracy's demise is down to its utter victory. So if populism as a strategy is potentially a strategic good. Do you consider it, consider it to be morally dangerous? 
Oh, I don't think populism is is a strategic good. I think it's it's okay. it's reality show stuff as well. It's like let's yeah. create little groups of us and them. Uh, let's you know let's stoke cheap emotions. Uh, let's dehumanize the enemy. Uh, uh, no, I think it's utterly, and I mean this literally. I think it's utterly fascistic. Mm. I mean it's I mean it's based on 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 a lot of political theories and strategies that that were you know, developed by Carl Schmitt. I mean it's it's. It's it's uh, who's sort of you know, um, Hitler's lawyer. Um, no, no, no. I think it's it's very dangerous and inherently destructive. And to try and sorry, try, no, 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 no. no. It's a, it's a <laughs> I think it's effective, take, but yeah. it's effective for horrible reasons. Yeah, and and short term. Well, make, I think by definition, the one we have now is short term, simply because the nature of politics is very liquid and short term. I don't yeah. think need nineteen thirties populism was quite <laughs> solid. Yeah. But um, I think that I think everything is 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 liquid and unsteady now. Yeah. Um, well, to try and you know perhaps foolishly to wrap this up, to paraphrase a line from your book, does this have a sad, happy, or indeed any yeah. ending? And are we heading towards a future, as some have said, with regards to countries like China, uh, where we're individually free but collectively we're in chains? Well, A, I think it's a little bit narcissistic of us to think that the biggest tragedies will happen here. Here we can just have like slow decline, fractiousness, a vile atmosphere, street clashes between like the Tommy Robinsons and the uh, and Islamist groups. You know, there's mm. definitely potential of sort of potential for low level violence in England. I mean, the only thing Lenin got right about England was that I think he was right that we kind of like outsourced all our in in a conflicts in our great imperial project, mm. and I've always wondered what will happen with England when all the all the seething hatreds within our society uh, actually have to confront each other. Um, but I don't. I still think England will remain a sort of relatively prosperous Northern European country. Probably be England. I I think the Scots will bugger off soon. Uh, any, any any thoughts about Wales as a as a? No, I think Wales is kind of like like. Wales is the spouse who and I don't want to genderize this. There's a spouse who stays even though she knows the marriage or he knows the marriage is hell. Yeah. It's kind of Wales Wales England will be like um what was that what was that um play we all had to do? It's called uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, you know, with Tim Burton and Liz Taylor endlessly kind of like needling and torturing <laughs> each other, but actually never splitting up and just going round in circles. So uh, with Scotland is the kid who just like left, just like oh, I'm out of here. Bye. Um I hope Scotland leaves for its sake. I mean, I really hope it doesn't stay in this <laughs> truly you know, sick relationship if it was going to stay. But um, so that's very sad. But but I think you know the tragedy. I think it's narcissistic to think the tragedy is here. I don't think we'll have another Auschwitz in the middle of Europe. I think I just think Europe is too old and tired and and kind of just you know geriatric for anything like that. Uh, the tragedies are happening in other places. They're happening in Aleppo. I mean, hell is happening right now. It's happening in. Uh, in in Burma, in Sri Lanka, in Asia. Um, I mean, in China. Yeah, with the Uyghurs, exactly. So, so, so there are concentration camps right now. Yeah. Um, I think we'll just probably just become bystanders. We'll become bystanders in in the world and bystanders in history. And is that what you're fighting? I guess uh, in your work. I don't know. I just, I just. No, what, what my my the secret message of my book. It's not very secret, but the kind of the kind of the underlying message is: How do we? find again sort of the uh, the democratic ideals that meant so much to people who were ready to fight totalitarian regimes and injustice and democracies in the 20th century 
And how do we find that as a truly global moment? So what I'm looking for, because it's a globe-trotting book, you know, it's, mm. I go to Latin America, I go to uh, Asia, Middle East, and, and what I'm looking for is the, is the patterns in between all the different crises we see. And I do find those patterns. So I do actually think these are universal problems. It's not a just an America mm. problem or a Russia problem or a China problem. There are universal patterns. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's a hope of, and can the book ends with the question, how do we connect these different impulses towards democracy? in different countries. Um, I think one of the ways we see that is, is with the ecological movement. That's become one of the few successful transnational mm. campaigns that has found something that people across the world have in common and care about and is a global emergency. So that's hugely encouraging. My worry is that it becomes like everything gets piled into that because that doesn't answer crimes against humanity in China or Syria. And I wonder whether there's a danger of the ecological thing becoming or kind of all the sort of liberal democrats put all their energy just into that because mm. you know that's at least something we can we think we can we can negotiate with um and turn away from the other huge challenges which 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 are also actually which we could move towards solving but but which might seem more frightening mm. uh, in the short term so so no but no the ecological movement definitely shows i think there's a growing understanding about sort of anti-corruption anti-global corruption and money laundering and tax havens and that this is a system this is a political problem this is a security problem this is what binds actually trump and putin mm. and you know all these nefarious actors i think that's a that could become a, a growing a growing thing i just know people involved in that and i can see them sort of coming together and suddenly activists in hong kong and ukraine and america are like realizing that the sort of the non-transparent use of offshore uh, offshore money flows uh, is a massive political problem mm. for all of us. So I can see that yeah. developing, and and there are other, and and we have to search for more. And again, I I think something that Alberto talks about: how can we find across the world what are the different things that bring people who still want to fight for for a liberal democracy together. Um, but uh, without a doubt, we're losing. I mean, obviously. Well, I mean, like in the book, there's a slightly exhausting but interesting mixture of hope and despair there. But um, <laughs> if people if people uh, if people want to read more about it, um, they will indeed have to. Buy there's the a book. Uni you also get a unicorn on the cover, and like you know, it makes a really nice <laughs> gift. Really so pushing it, that unicorn. Well, it's been going in a lot of windows, and I asked yeah. like like it was in the window foils and other places, and I was like, why'd you put it in the window? Because it's a big deal for Rice to get their book, like you know, yeah. like stand in the window and they're like oh it's just a really nice cover i'm like is it because of the book they're like no it's got a unicorn like, we love it well there, well there's some advice for uh writers and publishers like but peter thanks so much care about the jacket the jacket is really important <laughs> okay. you've been listening to the progressive britain podcast our producer is caroline crampton and the music is when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons